0: UUSF I don't know if it's an ancient Jewish teaching or Eli Wiesel who gets the credit, but it has been said that God created humanity because God loves stories. Good thing too, because it turns out that storytelling and retelling of our stories, it's a favorite human pastime. And There is the story, too, the story, too, that we enter into, as the poet Joy Harjo reminds us in her prose poem. Stories also aren't just something that we tell, are they? They have incredible power. Wiesel, who himself is a master storyteller, he knew that in a story could be evidence of nothing less than the human capacity for good, for evil, for self-transcendence, and for treachery. And so the telling of the story often, with its subtle and overt messages both, could serve some purpose It instructs. All the more reason, then, my friends, to pay attention to the stories we tell, the kinds of stories that we tell, and where they and we go awry in the telling, or where we go awry in falling prey to them, sometimes. Nigerian novelist Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie did a TED Talk in 2009 called The Danger of a Single Story. It's well worth listening to or watching if you haven't seen it already. In it, she talks about so many things, including how often and how many ways the story that gets told of a person or a people gets reduced to just one fact about them, how often people or places get essentialized, you might say, into one narrative. And she points out, too, the power that is at play into this kind of storytelling. Because the one reducing another to a single story or quality is so often exercising their power in their ability to do that. And it raises the question of who has the power to get the fullness of their own story across and whose stories are left incomplete. In the end, of course, as Meg brought us to in the prayer this morning, we all want a fuller story of our own truth, of our nation's truth, of any person to be known. We know that's a fuller, more whole humanity it allows for, but well, the powerless are not often so lucky and there are definite consequences to their stories being essentialized, any story. But first I think we almost have to backtrack a bit and ask why it is that single stories exist and admit, admit that actually there are many things about a single narrative that is appealing. A single narrative, after all, it's simple to digest, right? It's sort of like the carbohydrates of the moral diet, you might say. It melts in your mouth, doesn't take any brain power or choice or thought to process. It makes decisions easy, that's for sure. Understanding is super easy when you have a single narrative. You can get it and you can move on. We can sort people and places and information and move on. Doesn't take a lot of muscle. And there are particular kind of single narratives, I think, that you and I, all of us, fall prey to. One, one that I've been thinking about more recently, quite a lot, is what you might call the good-bad binary of stories. You know these stories. These are the stories in which the villains are clear and so are the heroes, right? They're super common in movies, especially in children's movies or children's books. The villains, right, we all know this, the villains in these are pretty obvious. Think uh, Maleficent the witch, right? They're unambiguously mean and repellent. They're often physically unattractive too, just in case we are missing all the other signals. The good, the good, by contrast. oh my gosh, they're usually handsome and they're unfailingly kind, and often they're backlit by sunshine in all of the shots. Ominous music attends the evil. The good have bird songs in the background. Recently, our family found out that Lila, our daughter, had never seen the Lord of the Ring" trilogy the movies. Well, you know, in an important effort to re-correct this, we have been watching the Lord of the Ring trilogy movies. One three-hour saga is about all we can get through in a given week. We're now two movies in, and I'd say the good and bad are pretty obvious in this movie. The elves, for instance, are good, right? They are peaceful, they are lovely, The orcs, on the other hand, are evil. They are brutal. And they're deformed. And unless I've forgotten a twist that's coming to me in this week's installment of the third movie, I don't think I'm going to find any evil elves or transcendently beatific orcs. And all that's well and good, right? In In a... Friday or Sunday night, movie night. Except I want to point something out that I also noticed, which points out, I think, how much we're all paying attention more intently, differently now than maybe 10 or 20 years ago. The elves in the movie are also, by the way, if anyone thinks about this or noticed this, they're often almost entirely blonde and fair-skinned. And the orcs? They are dark-skinned and often with distinctly though deformed African features and some are even shown wearing strikingly African or North African inspired clothing. We all noticed this this year. Which is to say that underneath this simplified moral fictional tale this movie lurks another single narrative, right? One that's being played on and it's also being reinforced. It's a larger, dangerous, simplified story of good and evil that is best understood as the evil legacy in our country of anti-blackness and the simplified judgments that it completely clears the way for even today, right? That shows up in how a young black man is treated in a court when he comes for sentencing or a young white man, or who gets shot in a skirmish with the police. And all because There is this underlying single story that we've learned to tolerate in the stories we tell and passively imbibe. Clearly, clearly, the stories that we tell or assent to culturally, they inform us. They inform our ideas, our choices, our beliefs, our policies and in ways that with the simplified stories can be particularly dangerous. Because they always, those simple stories, always leave the more deeply humanizing story, the fuller, truer story behind. So, simple stories are appealing, but We all know we have to be careful in their company, careful of the dangers that they present. Are the good, bad, or essentializing stories the only ones, and I should say, and essentializing stories, the only ones that we need to be prepared for? Pekka Hamalainen who's a Finnish man, currently a professor at Oxford University, he names this other kind of simplified story that he thinks we humans love that I want to name today as one other kind to just call our attention to. He says we humans love a story with a teleology. What does that mean? Teleology, this fantastic word with the Greek root telos, which means kind of an end or goal, And logos, reason, and together they mean this complicated idea that things, people, the world, might have a purpose built into it. And sometimes there's a sense that they are made and drawn toward that purpose, and maybe even that those ends are drawn to them, sort of this magnetic pull that makes it not inevitable, but almost inevitable. What hamalainen means is that sometimes we tell a story as if it's predestined to end the way that it does. And that in fact, we like those kind of simplified narratives. That we often look to tell stories that way. Why? Well, because again, it goes down easy, right? Doesn't it? Because maybe they reassure us by implication that things must happen as they should. That dictators will eventually be overthrown, that all people in bondage will eventually be liberated, that the earth maybe will self-correct. And in telling these stories, telling them this way, falling into this trap. It's a trap in which the danger is that you and I are inappropriately liberated from any obligation to fight the odds or to ask honestly, painfully, whether things might have gone another way, whether they might go another way still, And often we don't like to consider that option. It's scary, it's so much better sometimes to have the narrative of the inevitable. Hamilainen, who wrote a book on the Comanche Empire, but also wrote Lakota America, his book on the Lakota, says people talk of the Lakota ascendancy in the West as inevitable. It's one of the narratives that gets used. But he writes, nothing less could be true The setbacks, the massive risks, the story of ascendancy that was destined to be, he says, is, quote, too simple and easy. It has abstracted it from human experience, sanitized it of uncertainty, and drained it of meaning. We might say the same of any story with this teleological myth woven deliciously into its telling. Were the Lakota, for instance, destined also to defeat? Militarily? Hamalainen, who's a historian and not an apologist, writes of how the Lakota's fight was, quote, to keep alive a broader vision of America where coexistence through right thoughts and acts might be possible. Was that inevitably a losing fight? When the Lakota had 200 years of successful alliances with the French and the British, with Spain and the United States and numerous native societies coexisting and finding a way across differences to share land. It makes me wonder what's inevitable maybe right now and who will say that it's inevitable for our nation. I would argue that right now and maybe for the Lakota too, nothing was innately inevitable. Nothing unless we divorce all people from the obligation to choose. Nothing is Inevitable unless we surrender to the role of cynic and divorce our sense of responsibility. Chimananda Ngozi Adichie says of the simplified story that it robs people of their dignity. I think she's right. It robs those whose story is being told from their dignity, from from the chance to tell the wholeness of who they are and what they brought to bear in the world. And in so doing, it robs us of a little bit of our dignity, the larger world listening too. It makes us complicit in what she calls the flattening of the narrative, so that a person or a people or a chapter of history that deserves full hearing so that it might let its full moral tale unfold is denied the chance. Is this telling of fuller stories harder? Yes. Does it take more time? Yes. Can we do it perfectly? No. Just the explanation or attempt to explain this morning's song and the unearthing of what happened, the moments a native leader in the Pacific Northwest and its indigenous communities uttered those words and the journey through their translation and fictionalization, that was super complicated and imperfect sleuthing. Mark and Meg and I had to go digging and comparing notes, and we did research, and we may not even have gotten it right. But in doing it, I do think we ended a little bit of the erasure of the man, the real man, who the words had been attributed to for far too long. And he deserves that attempt And we deserve the end of erasure too. All of this, it strikes me, is a new muscle that we are all increasingly gonna have to learn to exercise in our ears and our hearts and our minds, to listen for what sounds like a simplified story, to wake to the fact that we're being told them way too often, to ask good interrogating questions born out of a sense of personal responsibility. And love, an ethical concern, and then to do the work of reweaving the stories we tell from what we learn. Because God, as Eli Weisel says, loves stories, but I imagine she loves the good kind. <laughs> you know, the ones that are full of truth and messy details, the kind that tell of real human lives and people and history. These, after all, are the stories that truly have a chance to instruct us on the real and messy and nuanced business of life. And these are the stories that are actually worth telling and retelling through time. So pulling us back to today on the cusp of Indigenous People Day, And speaking to how this awakening sensibility is affecting the stories we tell about Native Americans' Pekka, Hamalainen writes in Lakota America these words, it is only in the last few decades that Native Americans have entered history as full-fledged protagonists. Earlier for centuries, Native people lingered in the recesses of the American imagination as a, a kind of dark matter of history. Scholars tended to look right through them into the people and things that seemed to matter more, that seemed to move history, which is to say conquistadors and monarchs and founding fathers. Settler empires, nation states, global capitalist markets, the Indians were a hazy frontier backdrop, the necessary other whose menacing presence heightened the colonial drama of forging a new people in a new world. While persisting in popular consciousness as America's foundation myth, those stories now seem hopelessly outdated, relics of another time of different sensibilities. Today, Native Americans occupy the center stage as powerful historical actors who thwart colonial intrusions, reverse expected power dynamics, force newcomers to adapt to their way of doing things and profoundly shape the creation of a distinctly American identity. This is no ordinary story, the poet Joy Harjo says, of the oldest story, our shared story, that the Earth Spirit is working on. It is delicate and changing. You will have to endure earthquakes, lightning, the death of all those you love, the most blinding beauty. It's a story so compelling you may never want to leave. May the stories we tell be worthy of the lives that lived them. And may they be worthy of the world they shape as those stories are passed along. Amen.